I think it's just best to think of it as these different layers or dimensions. And that's why it makes all of this so tricky. It's not one magic bullet that's going to solve any of it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke, and in today's episode, we welcome Karen Pfeiffer to the podcast. Karen is a research fellow. She has consulted and published on the measurement and impacts of corruption, as well as on anti-corruption policies. In the interview, Niels and Karen discuss fundamental corruption theories and the impact of anti-corruption messages. I learned a lot from listening to this interview, and I hope you will too. Now, without further ado, over to Karen Pfeiffer, interviewed by Niels Kürbis. Karen, thanks so much for taking the time to come on Kickback. Um, I, I want to start the interview today with a little anecdote. So, so let me take you back to 2016. We are in Amsterdam okay. and we are organizing the first interdisciplinary corruption research conference. And it's sort of fancy hotel. There is a lobby where we have the keynotes and uh, Bo Rutzstein gives a keynote and somebody raises their hand and asks like, so what's your take on Pfeiffer and Marquette's new paper? And this, let's, let's leave the answer he gave aside. But the point that I want to make for me, this was the moment where I realized like, wow, I found an academic home. There are people nerding out about corruption theories and there's a back and forth. And I was, since then, I, I came across your name multiple times and I finally saw one of your papers being published just a few weeks ago. And I thought, okay, now is finally the time. We need to have Karen on an interview. So I'm so happy you took the time. So to oh. start off, before we go into the, the content, actually, how did you get interested in doing corruption research in the first place? Well, thanks for asking me to do this. I listen to kickback and I assign it to my students. So I feel like I've reached a new bar. So it's super cool. Um, how did I get into corruption? I guess how far back do I want to go? Uh, I, I was given a really kind of weird opportunity. Um, it was unique for me to go to Zimbabwe when I was 19 or so. And it's unique because I'm from like a really working class area outside of Los Angeles and people from there don't tend to travel to sub-Saharan Africa. But I went at a time when the country was economically crumbling, Mugabe was in power. Um, and for me at the time, I was studying for a bachelor's degree in sociology in California. And that program was almost exclusively related or focused on like really important issues in the US though. So the trip was my first introduction to really a completely different political and economic context. And I left the trip with tons of questions, you know, about what kind of leads to these big political and economic problems that I had seen really for the first time, what can fix these things, kind of basic, really naive questions and understandings about these dynamics. So right after that, that kind of spun me to start a master's and PhD. And, and in those, I focus on political economy of development. And within that, it, it, regionally, I, I focus on sub-Saharan Africa. And for me, so the scholarship at the time 
as it was presented to me. And I think that it was sort of, that's what it was. Um, it, it had this really succinct framework for understanding political and economic problems in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's to view politics through the lens of neo-patrimonialism. And as you know, you know, through that lens, corruption is kind of like a, a backdrop. It serves as this logical purpose for maintaining um, a wider neo-patrimonial system. Um, and I was really convinced by this at the time. And after, right after my PhD, I got another kind of odd opportunity, but great opportunity to do a short consultancy for Transparency International. And really they hired me to do some statistics work. It wasn't you know, anything really intellectual, but that, that was my first confrontation with sort of the larger international push to control corruption. And so for me, what it was is at that point was this kind of mismatch between the recognition that I saw in political economy scholarship focusing on sub-Saharan Africa that gave, that saw corruption as being like a symptom of a weak state and serving this logical function to maintain certain political systems. And then the global push to control corruption, which as far as I could tell, wasn't really recognizing that corruption was functioning in the way that this other scholarship was. So that that sort of tension is where I found myself. So interesting, because it actually relates the paper that was mentioned, right? Like uh, your paper was Heather um, Marquette on corruption and collective action. And maybe we can go a little bit into it because, um, yeah, it's one of the papers that I read with, you know, like it's one of, I remember reading it and just almost like, you know, uh, a captivating novel or anything, you know, I was like, wow, this is really cool. I, I was really going through everything and I could totally relate to it. And so what you're doing in the paper is basically giving three views on corruption, right? So the first one is the one that the classical corruption as a principal agent problem view. If you could tell our listeners a little bit about this, because it's obviously a very dominant, but also very not just related to corruption, but a very pervasive view on, on, on several societal things. So I think it would be really nice if you could give a short background on what, what is actually a principal agent problem. Yeah, so as it applies to corruption or as it has been applied to corruption, the idea in simple terms to sort of escape the terms of, of the economic theory is simply that corruption occurs when, when public servants have the opportunity to do it And um, it happens when there are, I would say, public servants have a cost-benefit analysis, essentially. So it's more in their interest to engage in corruption than not. So if you see it through this lens to fight corruption, you do a couple things. You monitor public servants at a greater rate. You increase punishment regimes so that it makes the cost of engaging in corruption It makes it more costly, more in general. And then you also reduce their discretion. So you take away the opportunity to get, engage in corruption altogether. So like e-governance would do that where now, you know, you can get a passport electronically and there's no real public servant involved. So that's the principal Asian approach in a nutshell to thinking about corruption. But the paper talks about two, uh, two other lenses. So, yeah, please walk us through them because I think that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, so... What I so at the time, this is how how that whole focus emerged was Heather Marquette and I were put together. Um, you know, fate uh, put us together, and at the time she had read Bo Rothbaum and, and Terrell and 
read their excellent paper as seeing corruption as a collective action problem. And so through this lens, it, for us, my reading of it is that it really emphasized the role that social norms played and perceptions of what people in wider society were doing. So through this lens, corruption can occur, especially in systemically corrupt contexts, because people believe that everybody else around them is doing it. And then so for like the ordinary person, they may feel like any effort that they can have to resist corruption or to, you know, report corruption won't, will be in vain because it won't make a difference because everyone else is in on the corrupt game. And that applies to elites as well. So those who are sort of in charge with enforcing anti-corruption laws that they might feel like because everybody else in the system is sort of in on it, that their efforts to really fight corruption will be in vain. And so then they won't do it either. So it's, it, it's premised on this idea that how you perceive other in society um, acting, it's going to be extremely influential for whether or not you want to engage in corruption and whether or not you're willing to fight it. And we thought that that was completely groundbreaking. Um, it was adding a layer to the principal agent view of corruption, which was absolutely dominant. Principal agent theory was sort of inspiring every anti-corruption program and policy going. And so to recognize that corruption was really a part of a cultural or not really cultural, but a social system was really influential because it meant that you might design loads of policies that could, you know, increase punishments and could make things illegal or even take away discretion. But those things might not get enforced and one of the reasons why would be that people perceive that others in society won't be willing to fight corruption in the same way that they maybe would personally prefer to do so. So that was great. That was a great new lens. But in addition to reading that, which we thought was great, um, we thought, well, and this is kind of rooting back to that political economy of Africa literature that I was grounded in, in my PhD, you know, in that literature, it really sees corruption as something that works. So it, 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 it's used to solve problems. So the idea that corruption functions is really quite simple and it's not, you know, it's not something that I came up with at all or Heather and I came up with, but the focus is on the fact that corruption is used to solve problems. That's why, that's why it sort of persists in many contexts. So it's used to navigate a host of problems. And some of those problems have sort of deep systemic, um, political, economic roots. Um, for example, a poorly pay paid healthcare worker might engage in bribery, but because of the perceived need to do so to supplement a low income. There, but it's not just about that. It could be about other things. It could be at different levels. Um, a really good paper written by... Uh, I think published by the World Bank. It was either on Honduras or, or El Salvador. I can't really remember. But there was a piece that they did that suggested that patron-client relationships were maintained and, and really defended by everybody involved because they gave ordinary people some sense of security. So that it was these sort of corrupt relationships were being used to fulfill a problem that, that was there. Um, equally, in some contexts, higher, higher level corruption might be seen as necessary for maintaining or sustaining the political settlement, you know, in other terms. 
I was about to say, like, this relates very closely to an interview we did with uh, Cheyenne Sharp Church and Diana Chigas, who did research on the ground in, I think, the DRC Congo. And they had this great quote, it's like, for many people, corruption is just a way to get back. <laughs> you know, like, we just yes. need to do it just to get, you know, I don't know, a permit or uh, medical treatment, etc. And I think that was a really influential lens that you brought in uh, in that paper. On top of that, I think what was really inspiring, I think, was before it was always principal agent theory versus collective action theory, and it all and and it seems so intuitive, right? Like one against the other, one has to be true and not the other. But I feel like in, in your in your paper, you make a compelling case for why they can both be true, why they don't need necessarily need to contradict each other, why some problems or some cases of corruption are rather a principal agent problem. And in other cases, there is a, a collective action problem. And I wonder how you got to that point. Was it something that you discussed with Heather or um, did you read something influential that led you to, to get to that conclusion? Yeah, I think, I think Heather and I sort of put our heads together for just collective experiences working on corruption. And she's got such great history working on in a range of contexts. So she brought lots of specific examples to the table. I was working with Grant Walton also at the time, and he does this great work of, about, or at, the, at the time he had just finished work on how different people define corruption in across Papua New Guinea. And again, so emphasized that in certain, especially in certain areas of Papua New Guinea, corruption was simply seen as a way to navigate a dysfunctional system. So, yeah, I think we are armed with lots of case studies from the literature. And to us, it, it just made intuitive sense. So the argument is just what we thought was natural logic, which is, and I think it, we were really pushing against any idea that there might be a one-size-fits-all approach to fighting corruption that would work. And instead that this is incredibly complex and makes the job even more difficult when we recognize actually all three lenses might be at play. So corruption might be difficult to control because perhaps we don't have the right legal framework in place, so that's principal agent theory, but it might be especially, in addition, really difficult to control because people, there's a widely held perception that you know, corruption is an intractably widespread problem that's difficult to, to go. And so then people have this sense of like corruption fatigue, which is when they resign themselves to the system. So that's a collective action theory approach. And then in addition, that all those things might be at play. But in addition, if people see it as something that they need to use to solve the real problems they face, that's, an, that's a different type of problem that also policy, if it's going to be effective, has to recognize. And I think the thing that, I mean, it's such a, a great lesson, sort of the response from that article and the art, the sort of interaction we had with um, those who are writing about collective action theory since. And one of the kind of bigger misconceptions, even amongst my students, when I teach it, and I'm really trying to be as, as careful as I can when, when I introduce these theories, is I think what happens is when we say that corruption is used to solve problems, people think that we're, we're saying that this is a good thing. And so it's not really, the functionality lens is not an excuse for corruption or you know, something to apologize for it. 
it isn't normative, but it, it's more about just recognizing that corruption persists for this reason. And so once we recognize that, then the anti-corruption policies have to reflect that recognition in order for them to be effective. Yeah, I think this is, um, I mean, let's put it this way. I feel like now we have the theoretical groundwork and the, the framework on which you can then, you know, test certain interventions. Because I think there is a trend in anti-corruption now to be a bit more evidence-based. I think we, we could probably both tell very many stories of interventions that had, for example, a mere principal agent framework in mind and had certain policies that then, you know, sort of backfired or were ineffective. And I think one of the parts of your work that I find also very inspiring is the way that you actually say, okay, cool, let's, let's put this to a test. Let's see how the different anti-corruption messages actually work. And this relates to what you said earlier, that oftentimes it is a social norms problem. So I wonder if you could walk our listeners through some of the work that you've done also with Brent Walton and um, Nick Cheeseman and others on how to best um, craft messages against corruption and what you've learned from yeah, that well, Unfortunately, I don't think the results say much about how to best craft it. So yeah, how not started, to craft it, maybe. I mean. Yeah, how not to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so all of the messaging focus really started from a conversation. I'll blame it on Paul Haywood. So I was talking with Paul, and we were saying, what happens when you live in a society where, and I think we were in Australia at the time, and we were, we were talking about, uh, there was, I think we came across uh, an anti-corruption program that was starting to, to filter into textbooks for primary, primary school aged kids in one of a Pacific Island country. But we were just saying, what happens if you grow up your entire life being told that every, that corruption is a massive problem? What does that do for you, um, for your sort of sense of political apathy or even to like, what, what does that look like given that we didn't grow up in that context? And then it, it got me to think, um, especially with Dieter Zinnenbauer at, at Transparency International at the time, we started thinking about some of Transparency International's um, awareness raising efforts and, and how effective they might be. And my sense from those working on this, not necessarily in Transparency International, but in some of the foreign aid agencies that were funding these efforts, was that effectiveness of these messages was gauged by how many people it reached. So the underlying assumption is that they were, they were working as intended. And so reaching more was, was going to be, um, you know, taken for granted as being a positive outcome. Um, but it's really Rothstein's work and quality governance work on, on collective action theory that inspired sort of a, a hunch that maybe this isn't working as intended. So the idea here is that if we raise awareness to the issue of corruption and we prime, so we make people think more about how widespread the issue is, might it, instead of inspiring people to resist corruption um, or report corruption, whatever the aim of the program is, might it instead give people this sense of what we call corruption fatigue? So corruption fatigue is this idea that you you walk away from, as it applies to awareness raising, you would walk away from an awareness raising message, um, thinking more about how big the problem is 
and convince and being convinced that, well, any effort that I can do won't really make a difference anyways. So it, it, it would generate a sense of resignation to the system rather than um, indignation and a willingness to sort of oppose it or resist it. And so the first attempt was uh, a really small study. I got a small pot of money to do this in Jakarta. I think it was like a thousand people were part of the study. And it was a survey experiment where I tested four different types of messages about corruption. And they were one, I mean, two of them just said how widespread the problem was. One talked about grand corruption, another one about so-called, you know, petty or, or grassroots corruption. And then one was specifically aiming at not highlighting how big the problem was, but instead to say, hey, it's now e- more, you know, easier than ever to get involved. Here's how you protest. Here's how you can call to report corruption. You know, it, it's sort of like an upbeat tone. And then at the time, KPK was still, you know, had teeth and was doing lots of, you know, seemingly great work in uh, fighting corruption in the country. So one just emphasized their wins. So what happens if people are aware that the government's having lots of successes in fighting corruption? Would that be, would that sort of have a different result? So we exposed um the thousand people, we split them up into five groups. One was a control group. They didn't receive any message at all. And the other four groups received one of the messages. And then we asked them a load of, sur- or I asked them a load of survey questions and, um, and really compared their responses to see whether or not exposure to a message shaped these responses to survey questions. And I, I mean, my expect, I don't know what I was expecting. What I didn't expect was the actual results, which is, regardless of the very different tones and content of the messages, they all had the same effects, which they depressed pride in the government's efforts, even the one that touted the government as being successful. They reduced a belief that ordinary citizens could be useful in a fight against corruption, even the one that was tailored, designed to do the opposite. So they were all back, like seemingly backfiring against these perceptions. And it's from that original study that the other ones have sprung. So there's been one conducted with Grant Walton in Papua New Guinea, and then most recently with Nick Cheeseman in Lagos. And the, the one with Grant, you also use a religious framing, if I'm not mistaken, right? Like you try to also appeal to that maybe identity yes. of people to, to fight corruption. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So in both the Papua New Guinea study and uh, with Grant and, and the one in Lagos with Nick, um, we we move away from some of the messages in Jakarta um, because thinking, you know, we've got, uh, if those have backfired, can we figure out a tone or a topic that might work as intended? You know, can we, can we point to the direction of, of messages that, that may work? So in Papua New Guinea, the new messages were one was focused on sort of like a nationalist, you know, to be a good citizen, we should be fighting corruption. Another one focused on uh, sort of all these religious leaders are are um, in on the fight against corruption, and it's your you know it's your moral duty to to resist corruption. And then um, another one which emphasized how corruption can impact local communities and how people can fight or resist corruption locally. And in um, 
in the Nigeria study, we similarly did the local kind of message, the religious message, and uh, one about taxes. So framing anti-corruption as, as being related to your tax, your corruption as being related to tax money that's lost. In the Papua New Guinea study, the local message is it's actually the only message in all of the research I think I've conducted so far. The local message had a positive, a positive effect. So it did encourage people to want to report corruption, which is what we focused on in that study. But all of the other messages didn't really have an impact at all. And what was new to the LEGO study is instead of just asking survey questions, we devised like a simulated bribery game that people could play. So this was really cool because it was the, our first attempt at seeing whether or not playing with real money, people might uh, pay a bribe at greater or lesser you know, rates given what message they were exposed to. And that was a fantastic experience. And partly because what it showed that said, we were also able to parse out the sample. So we saw that messages had a really strong impact amongst those who were already convinced that the system was corrupt. So for those who we called them pessimistic perceivers, these were the people who already had this perception that corruption was extremely widespread. Exposure to our messages for those people encouraged bribery rather than discouraged it. But for those who weren't convinced corruption was extremely widespread, most of the messages sort of failed to have much of an impact at all. And it's, I read this paper, I think it was a working paper before, and I already saw it, I think, uh, one and a half years ago, and I was amazed by the approach that you're taking there. Because I think moving from survey questions to using a behavioral task to measure bribery brings with it, you know, like a whole new lens, uh, which we can actually then test interventions right like there are studies by Amantia and Bodhi showing that this bribery in these games actually correlates with bribery in real life so there seems to be some external validity to such tasks and what I think is really interesting about it you, you kind of can see how much of the other findings are maybe social desirability related or driven right that people might say what they think is the right thing to say in a certain in, in such a study But then when you actually, you know, give them financial incentives, you kind of see whether they put their money where their mouth is. And I think that that was really uh, great about this study. And the, I mean, the fact that you unfortunately found that these messages backfired, at least the ones that highlight the high descriptive norms, is something that's obviously a bit worrying. Question to you, though, Karen, do you think there is something that we can learn from this study that gives it a positive spin? Is there something where you say, like, okay, now, after having all these studies on messages, um, I could see that this type of message actually works. Um, you know, is there, is there some, let's say, beacon of hope somewhere here? <laughs> yeah, I think there is, but I don't think it comes from my research. So there's a brilliant study that recently came out by Matthias, I think uh, it's Agerberg is the last name. And there, I think it's a study conducted in Mexico. Um, and it's a similar survey experiment, I believe. And there he tests um, an injunctive norm message. So most of anti-corruption messaging that I've seen at least uh, is what we would call a descriptive norm. So it says, this is a widespread problem um, or it's prescript 
prescriptive in its tone. So descriptive norm says what sort of everybody else in society is doing. So this is a widespread problem. Here's um, a recent scandal that would all describe something being sort of a more descriptively normed um, message. A prescriptive norm would say, this is what you need to do to fight corruption. So please report corruption by calling this number or whatever. But an injunctive norm instead emphasizes what most people, um, what their attitudes are, I should say, or what how they feel about corruption. So it would say, for example, um, most people in society disapprove of bribery, you know, and it's the idea there is that when you emphasize um uh, the feelings that most people have, then, well, for Agerberg, he makes a great point that most pe- in a lot of societies, we think everybody else is okay with this action because we think it is widespread. So we, we actually discount the fact that in general, most people disapprove of it just as much as I would. So I would rather corruption not be an issue, but I feel like I have to engage in it because that's the system I'm confronted with. So with an injunctive norm message, it's the attempt there is to sort of um, reset people's beliefs about what everybody else in society believes is right or wrong. And anyways, the shortcut of Agerberg's study is that it tests an injunctive norm, which is, or message, which is, you know, most people disapprove of this and it works well. Um, I can't remember exactly the dependent variable in the study, but it, it works as you would hope it would work. And that's one study in Mexico. Um, So Nick and I have another study currently in the field in Albania where we test an injunctive, uh, two injunctive norm sort of inspired messages, hoping that maybe that is, you know, a way forward. Previously, like all the messages I've tested, they were trying to capture things that we saw in actual anti-corruption programming. So it was like, what are we doing now? And what potentially are are the unwanted effects of it? So I'm really happy that we're moving now towards looking at what could be done differently. Um, and I think Agerberg's study is, is a great step in that direction. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it seems to relate to this idea of, of fixing erroneous beliefs that people might have, right? Like you might actually be overly pessimistic about other people, yeah. whether this is because it makes it easier to justify your own corrupt behavior or whether this is your true belief is sometimes, I guess, a matter of either debate or research, right? But it, I do think there is some promise in actually, you know, maybe providing factual information that tells people how the reality actually looks like and therefore maybe sort of adjust their beliefs about the society. And, and there are some indication that this could actually work and, and reduce bribery. Um, I think... When it comes to that, the, the question that I have, so, so messaging is, is one lever for anti-corruption. How much do you see it as just a complementary lever to other policies? Or do you think that messaging in and of itself can actually bring about sustainable change in society? Could it be like maybe a critical view on, on such messaging campaigns like, yeah, you give people certain information and for a short time, for example, within an experiment, They might change their behavior or views or whatever, but shortly after they go back to their harsh reality and realize, okay, cool. Now it's back to me and relating to your theory, facing these problems and corruption is the only solution to it. What's what's your take on that? I think in terms of, yeah, 
what weight I put on the potential impact of messaging. I think I'm, I think it's yet to be established. So like the scientist in me says it's yet to be established. There's lots that we need to test. For example, exposure to one message, does it have impacts later down the line? You know, I've not seen a, a, a study look at this like in, really systematically across different contexts. Um, so that's a new frontier for, for others or, you know, for future research to look at. But my gut, in my, like my gut tells me so far, based on all the studies that have been conducted on anti-corruption messaging, is that this is like at best a, a, a marginally effective tool to shift anything um, and probably only in the immediate term. And that's because most messages seem to have kind of very little impact on even perceptions of corruption. So like they, I, I think there's two or three studies that have showed that exposure to corruption messaging doesn't actually change whether or not people think that corruption is widespread. So it doesn't update it doesn't seem to update people's perception of how widespread corruption is. Um, and then, as you said, it butts against this functionality issue that I feel quite strongly about. So even though we might change people's minds or make them think slightly differently about corruption with a message, it won't change the reality in many contexts that that's simply the, the only way to get by. So, yeah, I think my focus on messaging wasn't necessarily ever quite hopeful as this is a tool, but it was more like this is an area that's not being scrutinized and potentially might backfire given, like I said, the strong work on collective action theory and those those insights. Yeah, I think this is interesting because I actually agree that the messaging in and of itself probably doesn't do the trick. But what I do believe in is that changing social norms can actually help, you know, and, and messaging might be one, you know, like small way to, to help doing that. Other ways are, I mean, Christina Bicchieri has this term of norm entrepreneurs, or you have worked on, mm. for example, islands of integrity, or these positive, positive deviance examples where people see like, okay, maybe, you know, the, the tide is changing here and we are now, you know, like adopting a new type of behavior. I wonder if you have any, research that speaks to that as the, the potential of, of changing norms this way. Yeah, I don't, I have, I've not done um, anything on um, changing norms in the favored way, but the positive outlier stuff, I think, yeah, I think there's, you, you might be onto something there. So this is the idea and it's called sort of lots of different, um, terms, so positive deviance, positive outliers, islands of integrity, but it's the idea that you would look at something going in the direction as we would hope in a society where everything, you know, governance systems are weak and um, there's lots of political and economic problems more generally. So what can we learn from this outlier, this outlier in a context where everything else seems to be really difficult to navigate, um, to make progress. But I, my work on that hasn't touched on social norms as such. Yeah, it's true. But 
I, I think what, what I was trying to get at with this one work that you have, which I found really interesting because I've done some research in South Africa and you had a study coming out in South Africa on um, the police that there is this very interesting case that levels of bribery within the police force in one region of, of South Africa decrease quite substantially and the reason being um, not what you would expect actually it wasn't intended but it was rather a side effect of another intervention if I'm not mistaken so if you could maybe talk a little bit about it as a sort of inspiration for some you know positive change let's say. Yeah definitely um, so the project was again I was working with Heather Marquette on this the idea was that at the time at least um, lots of scholarship was emphasizing why anti-corruption problems or programs were going wrong or, or not being effective. And so we had lots of ideas about why failure was happening um, or why anti-corruption programming was ineffective. And so we thought, well, how can we learn from success or even identify it? So we started by looking at bribery rates, and this was globally using global corruption barometer. And specifically, we're looking at sector level bribery rates. So what's the percent of people that pay a bribe to healthcare in Uganda, for example, compared to the same percent of people who pay a bribe for education in Uganda? And so what, how do those sectors within countries and over time um, change and move? And so the methodology identified specifically surprising cases where the bribery rate in a sector reduced in a given country over a specific period of time. And it's surprising because the rate of travel for all other sectors we had data for were either staying the same or they were increasing. So the bribery rates were increasing. So why would we, and, and surprising to, it was a statistical, um, a really simple statistical trick to figure out a statistical outlier. So it's like we, you know, we're, it's surprising because less, there's less estimated less than 1% chance that this reduction would have occurred given what we know about other sectors in the same country over the same period of time. So that statistical, statistical exercise identified, I don't know, like half a dozen potential country sector outliers. So for example, you've got this healthcare sector or South Africa's police. And we had enough money in the project to do fieldwork in two cases but we were only armed with that statistical result. We really like didn't know if that was due to an error in the data. We just had no idea what that really represented. We started by calling around in both Uganda's healthcare system to just people we knew um, that might work there. We sort of put our feelers out who works in this area. And we work with Transparency International chapters in each country. And just talk to people working in anti-corruption, but also in each sector. So South Africa's police sector, Uganda's healthcare. And we were, we were asking, you know, is, is there something to this? Um, do you think, you know, the data showing that this seemingly dramatic reduction has happened, does that, you know, how does that jive with what you know is going on in the ground? And those, that, that desk um, research just revealed nothing. Everybody was saying, no, that's, this is not what's happening. Um, I think there must be an error in the data. But even so, we then conducted field work where we did loads of interviews in each sector. 
And what became clear, we cracked, so for South Africa, we cracked open the data a bit more and it wasn't, Afrobarometer um, was showing a similar reduction in police bribery in South Africa. So, so sort of helping us feel confident about what we found in the global corruption barometer. But Afrobarometer's data allowed us to look at specific provinces. And we found that the really dramatic reduction was seemingly happening in one province, which is Limpopo. And so that, that's where we went to do field work and just interview around. And what, what was, it's this interesting story emerges essentially where a very unique anti-corruption push at a high level happens in Limpopo, which is not, it's, it's a kind of a rural area, not heavy traffic, um, not a huge presence of sort of national actors, but because of this anti-corruption push, you have lots of anti-corruption energy happening in, in one central locace, location, um, you know, this, this capital of Limpopo. And our interviews with police were essentially like, well, we didn't know if they were focusing on us as well. We had no idea if our, if our homes were bugged. I mean, there were all these kind of rumors around this investigation, which was not looking at the local police, but because of the uncertainty and because there's sort of one road from Limpopo to uh, Johannesburg. And, and so traffic police, which maybe in the past would have uh, asked for bribes along that road, refrained from doing so because they were afraid that they might pull over a cop that was traveling or an investigator, anti-corruption investigator traveling to and from. So it just sort of put everyone on edge for this period of time, which was you know, an unintended consequence of this larger investigation into corruption that put, you know, suggests matching it with the data that we found in this surprising reduction, maybe reduced the willingness to ask for bribery amongst the police during that time. So that's that story, which was this really story about disruption and relates to principal agent theory to get back to that. So this is where, you know, you increase monitoring and and or this perception of monitoring, this perception, oh, I might get caught, I might get punished because anti-corruption, you know, energy is happening. But, you know, as we write in that paper, Heather and I, it's, we wonder how sustainable, you know, what's the long-term effect of that? Because once this high-level investigation was done, um, you know, the fear that there was going to be, you know, the police officer would unintentionally confront a high-level anti-corruption investigator, that, that dissipates. And so bribery rates may simply just return back to what they were before. It's difficult to keep that sort of pressure or, or that sense of always being monitored, always going to be punished kind of energy when it comes from sort of sideways. But the other case, I think, kind of roots back to this functionality thing. The other case was healthcare, um, and it's a wild case too. So it's healthcare in Uganda. There, in a five-year period, the data suggested that the bribery rate for people who engage with the healthcare sector had halved. So previously, half of people who had to uh, who made contact with the sector had paid a bribe, and then the data suggests five years later only a quarter did. It's still a high percentage, but it's, I mean, it's a dramatic reduction. You don't usually see that in bribery data. So when we talk to people about that, 
What also became apparent at that time was that the government had started uh, something called a health monitoring unit. And this was a really unique institution um, aiming to rid the sector of corruption and fraud, but it was housed in the president's office. It didn't you know, sit in the Ministry of Health. It had a tight-knit group of people who went in and did these unconventional raids in health centers. And I mean, and they had these sort of wild tactics that I hadn't seen before. So going undercover, and if they were approached for a bribe while undercover, there would be arrests on the spot, along with TV cameras to promote it. And, you know, this was like like a reality show almost, you know, on, on everyday, you know, evening, not everyday news, but on the news, it was not uncommon to see these type of raids being publicized. And those interviews in that sector suggested that all of that energy and the fear around being involved in one of those raids and being on TV and being shamed in that way was really high. So healthcare workers were, you know, really, um, worried about uh, being involved in any of that, and perhaps that our our suggest our argument there is that that, that energy reduced bribery um, during that time, and that again shows that this principal agent approach can work, right? It can reduce bribery if if our argument holds that that's what happened there, because this monitoring and threat of punishment then reduces the incentive to pay a bribe. But the way it links back to functionality in that in that situation is that what all of our discussions with healthcare workers suggested that bribery served a very clear function for them, which is they were extremely underpaid, like even compared to other um, professionals in other sectors, just wildly underpaid. And you couldn't really live on the salaries that, for example, a nurse um, was receiving from the public sector alone. And so bribery served as a function in order to supplement these low incomes, but also to get needed medical supplies. So it was this system that was that was broken, creating this need to engage in bribery. That was our interpretation of it. And so what does that mean then? Well, for us, what we saw is that the, the targeting of healthcare workers with this health monitoring unit in this principal agent approach didn't recognize the functionality of bribery. And what it meant is it took away this other ability to supplement income within the public sector. It's not desirable that bribe that, you know, Ugandans have to pay bribes to get health. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that was, that was just a matter of fact. And so by taking away without addressing the function that it served by taking away that function. Lots of healthcare workers we spoke to discussed leaving the sector, which would further cripple the the sector in general. They discussed um, having an incentive to be more absent, take work in the private sector, in the private healthcare sort of sector. So it wasn't fixing the health system. And I think this relates to something more general that I think about anti-corruption scholarship and programming, I think we have to be really clear about what the aim is. So are we, are we fighting corruption to reduce corruption? Is that, is that the aim? And that might be fine because you know, corruption is unfair and it distorts power relationships and it maintains inequality. Like I, I'm convinced of all that. 
But or are we sometimes fighting corruption in order to, for example, because we think that doing so will bolster a healthcare system and then result in better health outcomes or better health um, service provision. And I think those are kind of two different things. And so our approach to anti-corruption might be very different if we're only concerned in reducing patterns of corruption or if we're concerned in um, service provision, for example. Yeah, it's super fascinating, uh, Karen. I think relating to the last point you said, I think is also then the question how, you know, sort of pick from the different tools you have available to actually achieve that aim, right? And I think what, what your research highlights is that oftentimes you need a combination of them. Not necessarily always the, the big push that was always mentioned, but to just, you know, like, for example, if you have a very creative way, like in Uganda, of new forms of monitoring, I think they even used uh, investigative uh, or people dressing up with a hijab, right? So that they could cover their faces and would actually go um, see which nurses would ask for bribes, etc. And then I'm thinking, you know, like, you're showing that, well, if you de then do not accompany this intervention with higher salaries, you might have actually negative outcomes. Yes, you might reduce bribery, but hey, you have an exodus of talented uh, people leaving their jobs. And so at the same time, we know from the literature that just raising salaries alone often doesn't work that well. There, there's research I remember from Ghana with uh, the police force uh, getting a, a salary raise and they don't ask for less bribes because they say like, okay, cool, this is like mana from heaven, you know, I get more money, but I can still expect bribes because there is no fear of punishment. And yeah. adding all of this back to your work on social norms, right? You could also take that and have on one, increasing monitoring by creative ways, increasing the pay of people so that they don't leave. And then maybe use this window of opportunity and inform people like, hey, things are changing. You know, like now when you go to the hospital, you don't need to pay bribes and you actually fix yeah. their, their honest beliefs. The point. game has changed. Yeah, because if if you, for example, change everyone's social norms, like let or change somehow widely change perceptions that corruption um, is being widely practiced. Let's say we're able to do that. We wave a wand. All of a sudden, everybody is not so convinced that everybody else is engaging in corruption. But if you don't address the functionality, you still haven't displaced that issue. So people still might see, well, for me personally, there's no other option here but to resort to this. I think it's just best to think of it as these different layers or dimensions and that's why it makes it, all of this so tricky. It's not one magic bullet that's going to solve any of it. Yeah, but I'm, I'm so grateful for, for your work on this subject because it helps us to sort of disentangle it, both from a theoretical uh, perspective, like we, we talked about in the beginning, but also from a practical evidence-based uh, policy perspective. Um, You've been very generous with your time already. I um, would love to still hear your thoughts on or your, your recommendations for the pick of the podcast. So if you have any book, any um, film, paper, etc., that you recommend to our audience, we would love to hear it. It's a bit unconventional, but I was in, um, I don't know how much people can access it, but I was in uh, Jakarta and I met with, like a, a woman's anti-corruption group, and they devised a board game, an anti-corruption board game that is absolutely brilliant. So I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's, it's Majo, M-A-J-O. And um, it's, 
it's brilliant because you get, you pick up a card, it says a scenario that may or may not be corrupt. And then the board game requires that you roll a dice and that you have to answer and discuss certain questions about each scenario. And it just gets a really good conversation going. And I found that to be a super cool tool to use in seminars. But beyond that, um, it's somewhat ironically, I given my stuff on messaging, I'm super into street art and have like, that's a, you know, kind of a side note. And there's some brilliant anti-corruption focused street art around the world. So there was some great stuff popping up. Um, art lords in Afghanistan painted these huge eyes, kind of like a we are watching you message. Um, I'm at University of Bristol, so Banksy is also from Bristol, um, it would, and you know people will be familiar with those themes. But there's Kenyan graffiti artist group, and they they were urging citizens not to vote for politicians that were seen as corrupt, and their murals portrayed members of parliament as like vultures in suits. So that's that would be my recommendation for people to just look into those types of things. That's perfect. Uh, because it relates back to the very beginning of our interview. The conference I mentioned, one of the keynote speakers was uh, Dieter Sinbauer. And he was talking about ambient accountability and he was talking about creative ways, how such forums you know, might actually influence people's behavior and, and might reduce corruption. So I think we're going full circle. Thank you yeah. so much, Karen, for your time. And um, yeah, we hope we can learn more about corruption through your work in the future. Thanks, Niels. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Karen's work, please check out the show notes of this episode. If you want to support our podcast, make sure to give us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP. Kickback is a joint production by the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with assistance by Emi Assad and music by Kaihan Golkar. That's it for today. Have a great week.